Live from Liverpool, the Dark Paranormal, Season 7. Hi everyone, and finally, welcome back to the Dark Paranormal, Season 7. As you will no doubt be aware, this season we revert back to your true listener paranormal experiences. And for me, these are the best seasons that we do. Because unlike the famous cases, these stories can go anywhere and I've no idea where we will end up. And the stories that we've compiled from you, the listener, for season 7 are sincerely some of the most interesting and terrifying stories we've ever covered. So of course, a huge thank you to every single individual who sent through their true paranormal experience. Of course, we only have 10 slots available for Season 7. So if you don't hear your experience on Season 7, don't fret. We store all of the submissions that people have took the time to write to us, and we'll ensure that everybody gets their airtime, whether that be through bonus episodes or something else that we put together. As it's the start of a new season, I think it's wise if, for any new listeners, I explain what we try and do here on The Dark Paranormal. And it's really quite simple. We want to deliver to you true paranormal experiences in the most terrifying way that we can manage. It's a show where we ask you to suspend your disbelief as much as is comfortable for you so that you can manage to well up that inner childlike fear that we all had when we first were exposed to the paranormal. Each episode, we take a look at one true paranormal experience and deliver them in a way that you can put your feet up, lower down the lights, and think, in fact, know that these things happen. That sometimes there is a reason to be scared of the dark. We have one hell of a story to start Season 7 with. But before we get into that, I of course need to thank all of our Patreons. When you sign up to Patreon, not only do you receive these episodes ad-free and days before anyone else, you also receive the Patreon-only podcast, Dark Bites, each and every week, even on the downtime between seasons. We've built a wonderful community of like-minded paranormal enthusiasts over at Patreon, and we'd like to extend an exclusive invitation just for you. Head over to patreon.com forward slash the dark paranormal, just like these wonderful new team members have. Martini Junkers, Jesus Bastillos, Kyra Rivera, Sydney Conroy, Veronica Arbolida, Emily Thomas, Diana McNutt, Jordan Grout, Taylor Milks, Tori Lawson, Blake Racine, Justin Cole, Jessica Fosberg, Paula Fredette, Amber Chitwood, Black Bandit Show, Ashley Hartley, Natalie Israel, April Scheister, Lana Liuski, Austin, Jose B, Samantha Walker-Cumbie, Cushley Flynn, Brittany Halborg, Tracy, Sarah Maroney, and Sarah Ann Valencourt-Pelletier. Thank you so much, guys. I hope you enjoy all of the early releases and, of course, all of the Patreon-only podcasts. And finally, it feels so good to be saying the following words. But, lower the lights, make yourself comfortable, and, of course, leave your disbelief at the door as we give you Episode 1 of Season 7, Blood Runs Deep.
I believe you and your listeners will be interested in a story that my mother told me many years ago. Although I am a committed non-believer in anything of a paranormal persuasion, I find this particular story deeply disturbing. I also know that the story came to haunt my mother, and over the past few years she has refused to discuss or even speak the names of those involved. In that regard, I have changed the names of the people and organisations involved. St Helens is an old coal and glass industrial town in the northwest of England. It's one of those places which seemingly sit under the perpetual threat of rain from an ever-present grey sky. It's an environment which instills a toughness in its people. Fools are not suffered lightly. But, as with most working-class former mining towns, there's an unspoken thread of community which ties the place together. Something rarely vocalised and instead shown through the actions of its people. And it's in this town that my mother's true paranormal experience took place in. My mother had two cousins, children at this point in the story. Vera was the oldest and Joan was a few years younger. They lived at the bottom of a long terrace street which led down to an almost cathedral-sized church in the centre of town. The girl's father, Walter McCullen, worked at Sutton Manor Colliery, and their mother, Elsie, was an usherette in the local cinema. As a young girl, my mother lived opposite the McCullens, and, as they were roughly the same age, she and Joan were the best of friends. They were also in the same class at the local convent school, the family being devout Roman Catholic. Their childhoods were relatively happy and devoid of the emotional traumas suffered by many of the other families in town. However, when Joan was about 13, she underwent a sudden and shocking transformation, which, according to my mother, literally happened overnight. Her hair changed colour from a beautiful deep red to a murky, dishevelled grey. The circumstances surrounding this change were equally mysterious. You see, Joan claimed that she'd seen something in her bedroom. Such was her terror that she point-blankly refused to sleep in the house and needed to be temporarily billeted with her grandmother. She refused to speak about the incident, even with Vera, her older sister, in whom she normally confided. Although deeply traumatic and unusual, doctors explain the physical and emotional trauma in terms of a hormonal imbalance. Yet, such was Joan's terror at returning to the house that her mother, Elsie, consulted the parish priest. I'm not sure on the name of this young priest, but his response was enlightened for the 1950s. He recommended that Joan just be given time and encouraged that she should continue her friendship with my mother. In addition, and this is slightly unusual, he had purchased a packet of hair dye for the girl, which he discreetly left in the kitchen for the family to find, probably in hopes of, at least on the outside, 
returning a version of normality to the family. After a week or so of staying with her nan, my mother took some games around to play with Joan. The two of them sat on the floor of an empty bedroom, in which the only furnishings were palm crosses from the parish church, pinned on the bare plaster walls. As they silently played drafts, unprompted, Joan suddenly began to speak. I was looking for Fusty. That's what woke me up, she said. Of all pets, Fusty was an old brown rat that Mr. McCullen had bought from the coal pit. Staring blankly at the floor, she slowly moved her thin grey hair behind her ear and relived her experience. On the evening in question, an exasperated Joan lifted her blanket for the umpteenth time to look under the bed for Fusty. Fusty, come on. This isn't funny. Dad will have a fit if you don't come out, she said, flopping herself onto the corner of the bed in frustration. She lay there, staring at the ceiling, listening for the slightest sound that would give away the rat's location. Her eyes began to feel heavy, as her thoughts drifted from the lost pet to school, to songs she liked, her brain doing the usual rolodexing you encounter before drifting off to... Jones sat up, staring at the wardrobe where the sound was coming from. Silence. Had she imagined it in her sleepy... No, this was a real sound and strangely she thought she could also hear something breathing lightly from the wardrobe. The fact she'd never heard Fusty breathing before didn't register as she approached the wardrobe door. Again staring in silence at the contents for the slightest movement or sound, she held her breath. A small brown shoebox where Joan kept mementos, postcards, coins and the like moved a few millimetres to the side. And again, once more, the red ribbon she tied round in a bow to keep it shut, jiggling with each movement. Well then, she thought, that's Fusty found. Knowing the pet was safe, and probably happily going about his business, she debated closing the wardrobe and going back to her sleep. But then... The box jumped as if being hit from the inside, and from it came juddering, panicked breaths. She stepped back. This wasn't Fusty. Or was it? Maybe he was choking on something. Bending down, she retrieved the box and placed it on her bed. It was so much heavier than she remembered. In an effort to get into the box quickly, the ribbon became knotted, And so Joan picked up the box and gnawed at the ribbon with her teeth. All the while, what she believed to be Fusty was fighting to be released. Finally, releasing the ribbon, she flipped the lid off and... Back in the room with my mother, Joan fiddled frantically with a drafts piece, almost hyperventilating with tears in her eyes. My mum, eyes wide wanted the conclusion of the story. Come on, Joan, what was it? asked my mother. Come on. As I pull the lid off, oh God. Joan shook her head and began sobbing, 
There was a dead baby in the box. A small, dead baby. A real baby. With sixpences on its eyes. And I dropped it. I was so frightened, I just couldn't hold the little thing. Oh God. Many times I used to ask my mother whether she believed the story. After all, no such baby was ever found or witnessed by anyone else. But strangely, some of Joan's belongings from the box, some old coins and a blue necklace in the shape of a peacock feather, seemed to have disappeared. My mother's conclusion was that that horrific vision was just that, some kind of trauma-driven hallucination or fevered adolescent imaginings. One thing was certain, though, Within a few years, my mother and Joan would travel very different pathways and in drastically different directions. It's this part of the story in which fact merges with such incredible and compelling testimony that I defy anyone not to question their own belief in the supernatural. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. In the summer of 1962, Joan's mum, Elsie McCullen, disappeared. Never to be seen again. That is fact. A huge coincidence was that on that night of the disappearance, Joan was at a music concert at the Plaza Ballroom in St. Helens. The band performing that evening was an up-and-coming band that had just returned from Hamburg. The band was the Beatles. They performed at the ballroom on the 25th of June, 1962. So, on that evening, Joan had arranged to meet her mother when she finished her shift at the Capitol Cinema. When Elsie failed to arrive by 10.15, Joan presumed that she'd been asked to work overtime, so she walked the 200 or so yards along Duke Street to the cinema. To her surprise, she was informed that her mother had already left work. This is where the real mystery begins. When Joan returned home, her mother was not there. After checking with friends and searching the streets until dawn, the family called the police. By the end of the day, no trace of Elsie could be found. The police continued to search for her all through the remainder of that month. Rumours abounded that Elsie had a fancy man, and neighbours conjectured that she must have been harbouring long-standing plans to elope once her daughters were at the age they no longer needed the guidance from their mother. My own mother always believed that this was nonsense, and although the McCullen family kept to themselves, they always seemed happy. What she was shocked about was how quickly the disappearance of Elsie McCullen was forgotten, and the speed at which normal life seemed to resume. By midwinter, Elsie had been missing for over five months. Although posters were circulated across town, no one had seen her and no leads could be offered on her disappearance. People's suspicions now seemed to switch focus. Had Elsie disappeared? Or taken her own life? Had she been murdered? After all, 
Around that time, another woman's body had been found less than a mile away. By this time, the older sister, Vera, had left home and Joan was now working in the laundry of Providence Hospital, an antiquated building in the centre of town. And it was on her way to work that Joan had an unexpected meeting which altered the course of her life. At the bottom of the street in which the hospital was located was a small building that was used as a spiritualist church. Across the town it was well known for conducting regular seances in which the bereaved and inconsolable could contact the dead. As Joan passed on the opposite side of the road, a woman with a mop and bucket was cleaning the entrance of the building. Almost without looking up, she shouted across to Joan, Hello, Joan. I've not seen you in years. How are you, love? At first, Joan hesitated to respond, as the lack of eye contact suggested she was speaking to someone else, maybe within the church. How are you, Joan? She shouted again, this time looking up. At a guess, the woman was in her mid-twenties with a pretty face and thick red hair tied in a bun. Oh, I'm really glad I've seen you, love, she continued. I'm Mary Melia, and I know you're Vera. Oh, um, hello, Joan replied hesitantly. I've got something for you. Come inside. Without awaiting a response, the woman disappeared inside the building. Not wishing to be rude, Joan crossed the road and entered the spiritualist chapel. What immediately struck her were two things. Firstly, piped organ music was playing at this early hour, and secondly, it struck her how dark the room was, the gloom only being illuminated by a shaft of weak winter sunlight struggling to make it through the window. It smelt of dust, polish and beeswax. As Joan's eyes adjusted to the darkness, she could see that the small hall was almost empty, except for a few old wooden chairs scattered around the edge. But what alarmed her most was that no living soul was inside, and even Mary Melia seemed to have disappeared. As she turned to leave, a voice spoke to her from the far end of the room. Don't be frightened, love. I'm just trying to find it. Come on through. In faltering steps, Joan walked towards the sound of the voice she realised that a small arched door was hidden just out of sight. She cautiously stepped through the door, finding herself in a small back room. Cluttered at one end with all manner of old church paraphernalia, Mary Melia was perched halfway up a small ladder, holding a box which she'd retrieved from a shelf. Found it, she whispered, half to herself and half to Joan. Take a seat, love. Joan was suddenly conscious that the organ could still be heard in this small room, and she wondered who was playing it, and whether someone else was hidden in the church. The middle of the room was empty except for an upright wooden chair placed in the middle of a perfect chalk circle. Joan sat down. On the edge of the circle, Mary Melia sat on the floor. Joan, what I'm going to tell you, love, may shock you. But it's beautiful news, love. Really beautiful. Your mum wants you to know that she's in a happy place now and she doesn't want you to worry about her. 
It was her time, she says, love. She hadn't been happy for a long, long time and she needed to move on. Her passing was peaceful, love. I saw it. Joan sat bolt upright, unsure whether to leave but equally compelled to hear the rest. What? She killed herself. Joan's voice was charged with emotion. Where? Where is she now? Mary Melia held her arms out as a mystic or a faith healer might. She's at her favourite place, love. Where you used to go walking when you were little. Where the white rhododendrons are. Where you lost your shoe. Crank? Joan asked. Yes, she's left something for you on the post where you used to lift the fence up. Joan stood up to leave. Tears streamed down her face. I I can't hear all this. How do you know all this? I'm sorry, I I can't take any of this. Mary Melia stood up, blocking the door. Wait a minute. Just before you go, I've got something for you. Here. She reached across to a cardboard box placed on top of a stack of chairs and handed it to Joan. It was the same box which she'd kept her belongings in as a child. The same box which had appeared in her nightmarish vision all of those years earlier. Falteringly, Joan took the box. Go on, open it. With trembling hands, Joan slowly lifted the lid. There, in the bottom of the box, were two sixpence coins. My mother wasn't the only one to hear this unearthly story. I remember mockingly asking her if she believed it. Her answer was uncharacteristically angry. If you'd have gone to Crank Hill with her, you'd have believed too. Crank is located to the east of St. Helens, a quaint village once reputed to be haunted by the white rabbit of Crank. It's surrounded by pockets of woodland and small isolated dells in which ancient caves snake underground. Many a local child is said to have been lost to the cold Crank caverns. My mother continued to tell me how, just before Christmas in 1962, four of them took the walk out of town to visit the wood in Crank, where the McCullen family used to visit many years earlier. On three sides, the wood is still flanked by an impenetrable line of rhododendron bushes that bloom white in late spring. Besides the main farm track, a gnarled line of wooden posts support a barbed wire fence to keep trespassers out. Beneath an ash tree, the fence was twisted by tree roots. This had left a gap, which, each spring, the McCullens scramble through to enter the wood to search for pheasant eggs, or to pick the bluebells, or just to picnic in summer. On that day, the group of girls travelled to Crank. As soon as Joan saw the gap, she apparently bolted down the farm track straight towards the fence post beside it. The top of the post was empty. By the time the other girls reached her, she was on her hands and knees frantically searching the undergrowth. The other girls joined her, but after about 15 minutes searching, nothing had been found. 
It was only when they rested on the exposed roots of the ash tree that one of them noticed a half-buried chain. As they pulled it from the ground, Joan realised that it was her blue peacock feather necklace, and pinned onto one of the chain links was a triangular-shaped badge with a small globe in the centre. It was Elsie McCullen's cinema usherette badge. It was said that the only reason the police later searched the woodland was due to the fact this was the period of the so-called Moors murderers, when the Northwest Constabulary were tasked with searching huge swathes of open moorland and subsequently faced criticism that they were slow to react to compelling and vital evidence. Whatever the reasons why the police committed their manpower, Elsie's body was never found. For the rest of her life, Joan believed that her mother had taken her own life, and she lay somewhere in that wood beneath the bluebells that sprouted each spring. The whole bizarre chain of events did not end there. In 1975, Walter McCullen passed away as the result of an unspecified minor's pulmonary disease. At the time of his death, his two daughters had long since left the family home and Walter lived alone. By all accounts, he was a frail and lonely figure. After Walter's funeral, the onerous task of clearing his house to be ready for sale fell to his two daughters. For several weeks, Joan and Vera diligently cleared the house of everything other than carpets, cupboards and a wardrobe in each room. But the sisters could not locate the deeds of the house, which are necessary for the sale of any property in England. After weeks of fruitless searching through countless boxes and drawers, the sisters sat, defeated, on the bare carpet in Joan's old room. They began to discuss the possibility of reconstituting the deeds by paying solicitors to scribe fresh documents. But this would be enormously expensive, and the sisters were unsure if it could even be done at all. They must be here somewhere, said Vera. My dad would never lose anything like that. You know what he was like. At that exact moment, the wardrobe door in the room opened. Yes, it may have been a draft or a movement of the floorboards, but it opened by itself. Inside was a single coat hung on a metal hanger. At first, the sisters remained seated. I'll be glad to see the back of this bloody house, said Vera. She suddenly scrutinised the coat within the wardrobe. Standing up quickly, she took it off the rail along with its hanger. There, on the hanger's horizontal bar, was an old plastic carrier bag stuffed with official-looking documents. The two of them emptied the documents onto the floor, instantly realising that the thickest of the papers was indeed the deed of the covenant for the house. They'd found it. Eager to reveal what the other documents were, they organised the paperwork into neat piles. One envelope, with the bundle, was entitled Children's Birth Certificates. And to the sisters' shock, they found not two, but four documents contained within. 
in the late afternoon sunlight, they closely scrutinised the documents. Two birth certificates were those of Vera and Joan McCullen. The third was a birth certificate for a baby girl, born almost 12 months after Vera. And the final faded document was a death certificate for that same girl, Mary Melia McCullen, who had died just two months old. We have a number of terrifying tales to tell you during Season 7, all from you, the listener. We began with this episode today because I believe out of the stories we've received, it contains some mind-blowing coincidences and raises questions not only regarding life after death, but our interaction with those people who have passed on. I've mentioned before that I know a good story because it sticks in my head. And this story not only sticks in my head, but ever since reading, I've been dying to tell anyone who will listen about the contents therein, as I genuinely believe it's one of the most perplexing stories that we've ever covered on the show. But I will say this, although the image within this story of that child in a box with six pences on its eyes was one terrifying and horrific image, believe me, We're just getting started on those terrifying images that will stick in your brain. Over the next nine episodes, there are a number of stories that I promise you, and I say this with no shame, led me to sleep with the light on for a good few nights. But before I go, I just want to say a big thank you for choosing to spend your time with me here on the Dark Paranormal Season 7 premiere. To get these episodes earlier and ad-free, And to get an extra podcast every week, head over to patreon.com forward slash the dark paranormal. But until next week, remember, when you discuss the paranormal with someone, always try and leave a bit of your disbelief at the door. And I'll see you next time here on the dark paranormal.